More than 18 years ago, Moath Hazma Ahmed al-Alwi left his native Yemen to wage jihad in Afghanistan. According to U.S. officials, he underwent weapons training at an al-Qaeda guesthouse and fought for the Taliban until fleeing to the mountains of Tora Bora as U.S. forces closed in. In December 2001, he was captured by Pakistani forces and turned over to the U.S. military, which shipped him to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, where he has been ever since, a detainee deemed too dangerous to release, yet never charged with a crime. How long can the U.S. government continue to hold men like al-Alwi? Without saying it, has the country sanctioned indefinite detention without trial? Those were questions posed by Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer last week in a brief but pointed statement accompanying the court's refusal to hear Al-Alwi's arguments for why he should be released. It is past time, Breyer wrote, to confront the difficult question left open by a 2004 Supreme Court decision that gave the U.S. government the legal authority to hold men like Al-Alwi for the duration of the war on terror, a conflict that, as Breyer also noted, has no end in sight. As multiple legal battles from the Trump era wind their way through the courts, the troubling case of Moath al-Alwi is a reminder that thorny constitutional issues from the Bush and Obama presidencies are still very much with us. It's a subject we'll discuss with al-Alwi's lawyer on this episode of Buried Treasure. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. We are joined now by Ramzi Qasim, professor of law at the City University of New York and a longtime lawyer for Guantanamo detainees, a subject that we haven't spent a lot of time talking about in the Trump era because there's been so much else. But I think we were both reminded of how the legacy of the Guantanamo Bush and Obama years is still with us. And there was a really striking opinion written by Justice Stephen Breyer about one of your cases, a case involving Moath Alwi. So tell us who Mr. Alwi is and why was his case before the Supreme Court? Maybe the most important thing to keep in mind about Moaz Alwi is that the U.S. government um, has never alleged uh, that he so much as lifted a finger against the United States. And to the extent federal courts have weighed in on the merits of his case, they have already found, as early as 2008, actually, that there is no evidence that he ever lifted arms against the United States. And so the question that we presented most recently to the Supreme Court, because this is our second time going up to the Supreme Court in Mr. Alwi's case, I petitioned for a cert on his behalf in 2010, unsuccessfully. In this round of litigation, we asked for cert from the Supreme Court. We asked the Supreme Court to take his case on a pure question of law, which is, does the statute, the authorization for use of military force that was passed one week after 9-11, authorize the indefinite, potentially perpetual detention of someone like him for the duration of his natural life? So, Ramsey, before we get into all of the legal issues, yeah. which are fascinating and really important, just tell us a little bit about, about who your client is and how he ended up in Guantanamo. So... You know, Mr. Alwi is what you might call a garden variety 
Guantanamo Bay detainee. In other words, he was in Afghanistan at some point, long before U.S. involvement there, long before 9-11. When 9-11 happened and the United States got involved, he left Afghanistan and fled to Pakistan. He was apprehended in Pakistan and handed over to U.S. forces in exchange for a bounty. And that's a very typical scenario. The majority of Guantanamo prisoners, roughly 800 people who were there at the height of the prisoner population, fall into that category. Most of those folks were released by President Bush, and then a subset was released under President Obama. And the way that broke down, those who were released tended to be citizens of countries with close ties to the United States. Mr. Alawi, unfortunately, is a Yemeni national, which deprioritized him in that process. My point here is that the reason he remains at Guantanamo today has nothing to do with any kind of rational security consideration or anything of that order. It's unfortunately all about politics and not about policy at all. Well, and the issue is, can the U.S. government continue to hold him without charging him with a crime, mm -hmm. which is the case, right? He has not been formally charged before the military commissions, right. and yet he has been there 18 years. Getting uh, close to 18 years Close in to custody. 18 years. And this is what got the attention of Justice Breyer. That's correct. Um, you are asking the Supreme Court to take his case. Um, so you could argue he should be released. Yeah. To right? just answer a simple question, right. is there any legal basis? Does the authorization for use of military force really allow that? Does the Constitution really allow that? Does the law of war, which was designed to prevent perpetual detention, really sanction the detention of someone as a so-called enemy combatant uh, for 18 years and potentially for life because the U.S. government has taken the position in court in this latest set of briefs uh, that they could hold him for but the rest the, of the law, life. But the laws of war do say, don't they, that someone can be held, an enemy combatant can be held indefinitely until the end of cessation of hostilities in, in the underlying war. So that's a really interesting point because, you know, when you talk about the law of war and the term enemy combatant, there's already a disconnect. The term enemy combatant does not exist in international law. In it's fact, the Obama administration stopped using it they in 2009, They stopped using it at I some think. point, right? And, and then the Trump administration picked it back up. But it's a, it's a fabrication. It's an invention of the Bush administration. But there is a concept in the law of war of combatants, prisoners of war, who can be detained for the duration of hostilities. But when you, when you look into the history of the international law of war, the reason that concept is there is as a limit. Because prior to that, people were being held indefinitely for life. People were being held past the cessation of hostilities. So the whole point of the law of war is not to sanction perpetual, potentially lifelong detention. It's to actually prevent it. And the reason why you know, we're in this odd posture now historically is because the law of war was developed in a context where conflicts were between nation states and they reached a natural end point that was marked by a ceasefire or an armistice, and that would mark the end point under the law of war. We're in this sort of amorphous global war on terror, right, that knows no boundaries in time or space. Sometimes called the forever war, which, exactly. is, which is the problem for exactly. your client. Because he becomes a forever prisoner when you sort of take these concepts from a conventional historical context and apply them to something, to a context that is anything but conventional. And this is why we went to the Supreme Court and said, well, look, you, you know, there has to be a limit here, either under the authorization for use of military force, which is the law that the government cites, or under our Constitution. Because certainly when you look to the law of war, there's no precedent for this. Right. And this is what got Justice Breyer's attention and, you know, the comments that he made in this statement in your case is the government represents that such hostilities, the ones authorized under the 
AUMF passed after 9-11 are ongoing, but does not state that there is any end in sight. As a consequence, Al-Awi, your client, faces the real prospect that he will spend the rest of his life in detention based on his status as an enemy combatant a generation ago. That's absolutely correct, because the, the finding that he was a member, right? Again, there's no there's no evidence that he lifted arms or fired a shot or hurt or killed anyone. The only finding that's been made on the evidence advanced by the government so far in 2008, 2009 was that, well, he's potentially a member or substantially or not even a finding that, uh, that he was a member or he substantially supported the Taliban. So based on that, um, does that does that warrant a life well, sentence? But we should point out yeah. that even though Justice Breyer made these comments, and he's the only Supreme Court justice weighed in. He did not vote to take the case. So it's far unclear. As we know. That's okay. a really good question, Mike. Because he, he, he said this is a case we should reconsider this issue. That's that's a really right. key point because. Um, I think Justice Breyer might have voted in favor of taking the case, or maybe he didn't. What's unclear to us, and we will never know, is whether he voted to take the case, whether he was joined by one or two justices. The only thing we do know is that there were not four votes, because you need four votes for the Supreme Court to take a case. Right. So, look, I I have the JTF Gitmo mm, detainee assessment here of your client that was done in 2008, and it's a little more troubling to the average reader Mm -hmm. than you have presented it. I'll just read you from the executive summary. Detainee, and that's uh, Al-Awi, is an assessed Al-Qaeda member and an Osama bin Laden bodyguard. Detainee is a veteran jihadist and admitted fighting for the Taliban on the front lines as a member of Osama bin Laden's 55th Arab Brigade. Detainee Mm -hmm. participated in armed hostilities against U.S. and coalition forces on the front lines and in bin Laden's Tora Bora mountain complex. He took basic training, including several advanced militant training courses at Al-Qaeda-affiliated training camps, including hand-to-hand combat training. And the conclusion is he is a high risk to pose a threat to the United States, its interests, and its allies if he is released. So, Mike, if you'll allow me to respond in two parts. Please. The first part is that what you're reading here is a Department of Defense document that was classified and was leaked through WikiLeaks. So we know about this because of WikiLeaks. Because of WikiLeaks. Now, because I hold the security clearance for the work that I'm doing on this and other cases, I can't comment on that document directly. So that's the first part. Okay. The second part is what I will tell you is that we live in a country that, that considers that it follows the rule of law. That's the mythology that we have about our own country. We believe in the presumption of innocence. We believe that whatever might be in a document like that is merely a set of allegations that are unsubstantiated, unproven, until a court or a jury finds as much. So I will refer you to the evidence that the government actually presented to the federal court when this case was litigated in 2008-2009 in habeas corpus. They did not put forward all of the drivel that one might find in this sort of document. And the evidence that they did put forward, even in front of a very sympathetic judge, that was not tasked with determining whether the evidence was there beyond a reasonable doubt. Nothing like that. It was preponderance of the evidence, more likely than not. It's the standard that applies in a slip and fall case in a supermarket, not in a liberty case. So even in front of a sympathetic judge, Judge Richard Leon, who's no tree-hugging communist, even in front of, uh, you know, using a, a standard that's very favorable to the government, 
all the court found in 2008, 2009 was that there was no evidence he ever lifted arms against the United States and that he substantially supported the Taliban by staying in a guest house that was affiliated with the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. But Judge Leon did... Uh, rule that he should stay in custody in Guantanamo. And, and Judge Leon then ruled, again, because the law is so unfavorable and harsh, that based on a guest house stay alone, you are an enemy combatant and therefore you are detainable under the AUMF. Now that was, let's say that was fine legally in 2008. The Supreme Court in 2004 said, we're going to accept that the AUMF authorizes detention for the duration of the relevant conflict. But if this goes on for too long, we might revisit that understanding. And that's where Justice Breyer comes back in and says, look, we may have signed off on this sort of detention in 2004, but here we are 15 years later and this man is still there. And he's not accused of masterminding 9-11. He's not accused of, he's not actually formally charged criminally with anything. I think that, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the justice who said we may revisit O'Connor uh, is O'Connor. She's correct. gone. Yep. Justice Kennedy is gone. That's correct. Uh, Justice Stevens, who I think was still there, is gone. Uh-huh. All of them have been replaced by much more conservative uh, justices. The last one, Justice Kavanaugh, a veteran of the Bush administration, yep. is pretty hard line on these issues. We know that from that's his right. rulings in the D.C. Circuit. And he upheld so, Judge Leon in this case, right? He actually didn't. He wasn't a member of the panel, but he. Um, I think to the extent he was involved in this case, it was to deny our petition for initial hearing en banc by the full Ninth Circuit Court. But he was not, not a me- circuit, uh, uh, sorry, DC circuit. circuit. That's correct. But he was not a he was not a member of the three judge panel uh, whose decision we've just taken up right. to the Supreme but Court. But so uh, Justice Breyer's statement, mm-hmm. notwithstanding, the legal environment has gotten much tougher for you since then. And so I guess the question is, realistically speaking, what are your options? And I guess one question is, is there something that Congress can be doing? I mean, there is a a debate again now about whether Congress should repeal the AUMF. All of this is, that's the authority under which your client is being held. Mm. Would that make a difference? Yeah. So you guys don't ask easy questions here. (laughs) (laughs) The sense I'm getting. So so that that is really the heart of, of what not just sort of our team, Mr. Alwi's team, but I think a bunch of other folks who are working on these issues on behalf of these prisoners are considering, right? What are the avenues forward when you look at the composition of the court, when you look at the personalities that are now represented on the court, the way they've ruled on these issues in the past to the extent that they have? I mean, I think if there is some sort of political wind change in the United States that opens up avenues for legislative advocacy, like a meaningful legislative intervention, a meaningful policy intervention. So with a different Congress, with a different White House, one might go to them with something like Justice Breyer's recent statement and say, look, you know, this is an issue you need to pay attention to. You might want to change executive branch policy on Guantanamo, for example. You might want to make it the White House's policy again to close the prison in a responsible manner. Or one could go to Congress and say, you should revisit the authorization for use of military force at this point, pass another AUMF, or sunset the AUMF as it exists today, or revise it. Right now, I I don't know that those avenues are are promising. Look, people have been talking for years about changing the AUMF, Mm -hmm. repealing it, replacing it with something, but they cannot figure out any way to do it that is going to be politically saleable. Because we have built, as a country, we have built so much on those 60 words that make up the AUMF. Everything, not just from Guantanamo, detentions of Bagram, military interventions in places that we are not at war, like Somalia and It's being argued by some right now that Mm. the AUMF can even be stretched to include military attacks against Iran. 
because you go back to the 9-11 Commission and there were some Al-Qaeda members who fled to Iran. And uh, I think the State Department is looking at... Well, yeah, at, one of bin Laden's uh, sons was being harbored by the Iranians, right? right? So, right. Yeah, but which I, I mean, I would hope most reasonable people would agree that that would be a terrible idea. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's sort of illustrative of the fact that the AUMF has been used to support so many endeavors... Including, um, it's the entire premise for the detentions at Guantanamo, which uh, Barack Obama, you may recall, many, many years ago, pledged he was going to shut down. Mm-hmm. I think it was his first full day in office in 2009, January, and uh, it's still with us. How many detainees are left in Guantanamo? So today there are 40 prisoners left in Guantanamo. Only about you know, 26 of them, I think, would fall into this forever prisoner category that my client, Mr. Alwi, falls into in the mm-hmm. sense that they have not been charged with any crime. The United States does not intend to charge them with any crime, as far as I know. There are five men who are already approved for release, yet they languish at Guantanamo. And then you have the folks who are left who are in some way, shape, or form, either currently involved in the military commissions or are serving time. Who have been charged with the attacks of 9-11 and the the attack on the USS Uh, Cole. And that seems, that trial, of course, it's mm. still a long way from actually going to trial. It's a process, a procedure that seems to be going on indefinitely as well. It's kind of like a metaphor for the whole thing. And say what you will, Mike, about the U.S. federal court system. And uh, I am extremely critical of the way that terrorism prosecutions unfold in federal courts. And in so Article 3 courts. In Article 3 yeah. courts. But one thing that you have to recognize is that Article Three courts are efficient. They've handled these cases in the past. And there is no way that even a case like the Khalid Sheikh Mohammed case, the 9-11, the accused 9-11 mastermind, even a case of that complexity would not have taken as long as it has taken in the military commissions had that person been tried in federal court. Not even close. He he would have been been executed (laughs) five years ago or something. I mean... uh, He certainly uh, would have been convicted many years ago. There would have been been a conviction and and we'd be litigating appeals. And beyond Uh, that, I think I've seen uh, statistics that show show that we're spending something like $11 million a year on on Gitmo prisoners and for a... uh, someone who is in the federal system, it's, a, um, it's you know, a few hundred thousand dollars. That's absolutely correct. And, and, the, and the part of what I, remi- I, I try to remind people that the, the economic calculus is exactly as you've put it. It makes no sense fiscally, right? But that's not the relevant calculus for policymakers. It's always been a political calculus. And so for the Bush administration, we know what the political calculus was. They opened the prison. For the Obama administration, it wasn't worth the political capital to try really hard to close it past the initial statements and executive orders. For the Bush administration, Guantanamo pays. You know, there's a section of, you know, maybe the entire base that President Trump relies on really buys the idea that Guantanamo is necessary and, and they like having it out there. And and it sort of bolsters this image that he wants to project President Trump of Trump, himself. The as, Trump administration. Yeah, that, that, yeah, that President Trump wants to project an image of himself as being tough on terror and he's keeping Guantanamo open and he's potentially going to load it up with quote unquote. Well, he, he bad talks about that, but he hasn't done early it. on, but he has not. But its presence by itself it. pays politically. And that's the calculus. It's not an economic calculus, I think, for the policymakers, unfortunately. And it's not even a policy sort of security policy calculus, because 
every relevant stakeholder from the diplomats to the intelligence folks to the military folks will tell you Guantanamo hurts us more than it helps us. Let me ask you a uh, just a hypothetical question. If your client had been a member of the Taliban as opposed to an alleged member of al-Qaeda, and of course there's some Taliban who had been taken to Guantanamo, if there was a negotiation, I think there, there are negotiations that are ongoing with the Taliban, if there was an agreement, a peace deal, and a cessation of hostilities, then those people could be released because you'd have an the conflict would be over, right? So the difference is that if you're a member of al-Qaeda, which is a, a more amorphous terrorist organization that is constantly evolving and metastasizing, that's what makes it difficult. There's no one to negotiate with and no possibility for hostilities to end in the kind of conventional way that we think about. So Mr. Alwi, you know, the courts have found, to find him detainable, the courts have found that he is a member or has substantially supported the Taliban or al-Qaeda. So it's, it's been really vague. They've basically just recited the standard mm-hmm. and said, okay, well, he meets it in some way. The more important thing to keep in mind or to keep center stage is that Mr. Alwi is a Yemeni national who was born and raised in Saudi Arabia. His family resides in Saudi Arabia. Yemen is not a country that the United States right now would send anyone back to given what's going on in Yemen. Right. His family ties are in Saudi Arabia. That is an allied country. It has a rehabilitation and reintegration program for folks who come back from Guantanamo, from other U.S. sites, who come back from Syria. Which your client would be willing to go to? Which I think my client might be willing to go to. I mean, we we haven't even had that conversation Mm -hmm. meaningfully because we haven't gotten close to that. But I've had clients repatriated from Guantanamo back to Saudi Arabia and who've gone into that program. So that's a tried and tested thing. Over 100 prisoners have gone from Guantanamo into that program. The United States could very easily work out an arrangement where someone like Mr. Alwi would be transferred from Guantanamo back into that program for a period of time and then released into the custody and care of his family in Saudi Arabia, which is a security state where he would be subject to some level of monitoring on a forward-going basis. You know, I think there are a lot of guarantees that are kind of structurally built into Mr. Alwi's situation because he happens to come from Saudi Arabia. He's not an Afghan national. We wouldn't even have to think about returning him to Afghanistan or... Well, let me just, uh, just to end this, when I wrote a book about all of these issues, mm. um, the last line of the book, killer called capture, Kill, killer, yeah, killer capture, right? The last line of the book was that uh, it was a Obama administration, a senior Obama administration official, predicting that decades from now, mm-hmm. and this would have been in 2013, I think, decades from now, like Spandau Prison, where the Nazis <laughs> were being held, there will likely be maybe only one toothless. 100-year-old prisoner at Guantanamo, Mm. but it'll still be open for business. Let's uh, hope for your sake that it's not your client. Well, I I hope for all of our sakes, honestly, that it's not anyone, because, you know, the fact that a precedent like that is out there is a problem not just for non-U.S. citizens like my client. The U.S. Solicitor General, the U.S. government's highest representative before the Supreme Court, in a brief that they filed in this case in April of this year, took the position that it would not be outrageous or unlawful for a U.S. citizen to be placed in Mr. Alwi's position. In other words, detained as an enemy combatant in a place like Guantanamo for 17 plus years without charge. We should all be troubled when our own government is going to the Supreme Court and openly embracing that possibility. Wait a second. Noel Francisco, the Solicitor General, argued in court papers before the Supreme Court that a U.S. citizen could be held indefinitely without trial in Guantanamo? That is absolutely correct. And frankly- Because they never have sent U.S. citizens to Guantanamo. they have not. Well, Yasser Hamdi, 
was a U.S. citizen, but, he was, but he they was, didn't know he was a U.S. citizen. As they, soon as he found out, they sent him to they, the brig. And right, but North, they still held him yeah. as an enemy combatant. So there is precedent for U.S. citizens and U.S. persons, green card holders, being held as enemy combatants. Not for this long. And this is the first time that in a brief filed before the Supreme Court by the Solicitor General, no less, the U.S. government has officially taken the position that this would be okay. Even this, 17 years, no charge, enemy combatant, that it would be okay if it were a U.S. citizen. And by the way, it's not like the Solicitor General can just cavalierly put something into a brief and get it filed. These briefs are vetted by general counsel at DOD, by the White House counsel. So that should trouble all of us, even if we only care about U.S. citizens. And I, don't, I personally don't take that position. I, I don't care what your citizenship is. I believe every person is entitled to being charged, to have their day in court, regardless of what their nationality is. But if you are a fervent nationalist and you only care about what happens to U.S. citizens, then you should still be troubled by what's happening to Mr. Alwi. Well, that is remarkable, and it just shows how much we miss because we spend so much time with President Trump and everything he says and does that it's really extraordinary really how much time we spend um, on these issues yeah. and how little time we are now. We Meanwhile, your clients, a lot of other right. people are still languishing there. Right. So. And I just got to say, you know, what really grabbed me is the idea that we are effectively de facto indefinite detention without trial. It's become a reality all these many years. Thanks for joining us and reminding us of this significant legal development. Thank you both for your work. Thanks to Ramzi Qasim for joining us on this episode of Buried Treasure. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon. 